Good morning. Try to find, there it is. Um, as the children head to the back, we're going to be jumping right in this morning, continuing our Advent series. Um, this year we've been saying Advent is the creation of God's kingdom. Um, if you're not familiar with Advent, it's the four Sundays before Christmas. Uh, here we celebrate those four Sundays by looking at hope, peace, joy, and love. Um, the, the Advent of Advent, I was going to say, but the creation of Advent is um, this series where the worldwide church for now thousands of years have been gathering to really just celebrate that our God is faithful. Uh, there's two things we primarily focus on in Advent. The first one is simply that Christ has come into the world. We waited expectantly then as we do now because Advent also points us to the second coming. I got to remember this tree's here. Um, a couple weeks ago, I slapped myself with a ball from the tree. If you aren't here, you, well, you can imagine. It's close. All right? So Advent is um, this idea of Christ has come, Christ is coming, Emmanuel, God with us. And I love that, Emmanuel, God with us. I love that the king of all kings becomes a baby. I love that he who knew radiance takes on skin. I love that Jesus Christ becomes flesh and blood and moves into not just our neighborhood, but teaches us how to live and love and walk and please God. So at Advent, we're doing hope, peace, joy, and love. Last year, we focused on kind of the, the, the women in the Jesus creation um, to Jesus' birth story. And this year we were looking at their male counterparts. So a couple weeks ago we started with Joseph and his God of hope and said that hope is really trusting what God has done and trusting what God will do. So how do we create God's kingdom into this world? Well, we hope. We trust what God has done, we trust what God will do, and we trust God today. Then last week we looked at Simeon and said, you know, our God is a God of peace, but the peace that God talks about is a peace that is shalom, a peace that is peace with God, peace with self, peace with each other, peace with creation. Now, how do we bring shalom into this world where well, we look at Simeon. And one way we can summarize this, the shalom that was in Simeon's life was that the Holy Spirit was on him, the Holy Spirit spoke to him, and the Holy Spirit moved him. So again, how do we create God's kingdom into this world? We let the Holy Spirit rest upon us. We let the Holy Spirit speak to us, and we let the Holy Spirit move us. Now this morning we'll look at Zechariah, and we'll talk about joy, and next week we'll talk about Christ and love. Um, but first, we're going to read our scripture, and then we'll pray and jump right in. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke, um, Luke 1, 5 to 25. Um, I will be reading, so you can follow along there. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of the Lord, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless. Because Elizabeth was not able to conceive. They were both very old. Once, Zechariah's, once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn the incense. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. 
He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled by the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord." Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm old man and and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant for five months, remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people." Let's pray. This prayer is actually based on um, the, the song and that Zechariah sings after John the Baptist is born. Um, let's pray together. Praise you, Lord God, the God of all the earth, because you have come to your people and redeemed them. You have raised up a strong king for our salvation from the house of the, your servant David, as you promised us through your holy prophets long ago. Praise you, Lord, for Jesus Christ, for the salvation he's coming brings for the mercy you showed to all who believe, for remembering and fulfilling all your promises, and for choosing us to serve you with joy. Lord, help us to live for you, holy and righteous all of our days. May we shine our light as your prophets, preparing the way for our Christ, for people to know your salvation and the forgiveness of their sins. God, thank you for mercy that each day brings. Amen. Amen. So this morning we're going to talk about joy. And joy is a little bit of a tricky one because it's, it's a word that we know. You know, hope we might be able to describe and maybe get our hands around, our mind around. Peace, same thing we might be able to describe. But joy, we know. You know, there's, there's a couple of different ways we understand joy. Joy is just delight. You know, when you're talking to someone, they just seem genuine, and there's something different about them. You're just like, oh, you're a good person. This is good, right? For some of us, that's a relief because we don't bump into good people too often, right? But it's just like you get this genuine spirit, and it's just a delight to be around that person. For some people, maybe me, I'm putting myself out there, joy is a good meal, right? You just take a bite, and it's so delicious, and you're like, I don't know what heaven's like, but I feel a step closer, Right? But for me, one of the things I've been noticing lately is that I see joy in how my three-year-old sees the world, right? Like when she's driving, when we're, oh, I'm driving around, sorry. These, these, are, these are recorded. We got to be careful, you know? When I'm driving around in the car, I'm noticing that like, you know, this is one house we always pass, right? And they're like Christmas on steroids, right? And I like just look and I'm just like blinded by all the things happening. And she gets so excited. Like she squeals with delight. For her, that's joy. And if I don't take the same way home and pass by that same house, I hear about it, right? And then it's not so joyful. Um, But the other thing about joy that I'm even noticing for my five-year-old, you know, she's a true natural-born Johnson because she really thinks she's the funniest person she knows. And I get joy in her being a true natural-born Johnson as well. So joy for us is delight. 
But for some people, joy is jubilation. You know, the world says dance like no one's looking. And for some of us, we don't want anyone looking when we dance. But when you get so happy, you dance. And maybe all my things come back to food. But ever since I was a kid, when you grab that really good big piece of meat and you take a bite and it's so good, you just want to dance, that's jubilation. That's joy. For some of us, joy is happy tears or a job well done. You put your heart into something and you see the fruit of it, you get that jubilation. But for some people, joy is bliss. Maybe holding your baby for the first time. Or maybe the first time you're truly under the stars and you see how great and grand and big our God is. Or maybe it's when you get to talk and connect with someone without even speaking where you can just have this bond and you know that you are one and you're united in friendship. So what is joy but a delight, but a jubilation, but bliss, and so much more? I'm sure you can fill in so much more. But what is joy in the Bible? I think there's three different ways that we are to understand joy biblically. I think, first of all, there's a promise we get for joy. Then there's a practice. You know, for some of us, we say choose joy, and we can do that. But for some of us, it's hard to just choose joy, which is why I think the Bible calls us to practice joy. Because you might not be able to choose it whatever you're struggling with or wherever you are right now, but you can always practice joy. And then how do we choose joy or how do we hold on to this promise or how do we practice joy? We look at our prototype, who's Jesus, our Christ. What does joy come as a promise? Perhaps in Psalm 30b, that famous psalm that we always sing. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Or some of our older versions says, sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. That's the promise we have from our God, that no matter what you're going through, joy comes in the morning. No matter what darkness you're facing, joy comes in the morning. No matter how far away you feel from God, joy comes in the morning. That's the promise from God himself, that joy is coming. And if you can't hold on to the promise, or if you're trying to hold on to the promise, there's the practice of joy. Now, I always thought this was funny because the Bible, at least uh, when, when Paul wrote his letter to the Philippians, it was in Greek. But whenever I read these four verses in Philippians 2, I was like, I really think Paul is talking about joy here. And he's telling us how to practice joy. Now, I'm not sure Paul had a modern understanding of the English language. I'm not even sure he understood acronyms, right? He may have. But when I read Philippians 2, 1 to 4, I hear Paul telling the Christians and everyone, if you want to practice joy, put Jesus first. There's your J. If you want to practice joy, live for others, there's your O. If you want to practice joy, put Jesus first, live for others, then worry about yourself. That's how we practice joy. Philippians 2, 1 to 4 reads like this. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by be like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit of one mind. Do not do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of others. We have the promise that no matter what we're going to, 
joy comes in the morning. We have the call that we might not be able to choose joy, but we can practice joy by seeking first Jesus and his kingdom, by living for others, and then worrying about ourselves. Because if we're seeking first his kingdom and we're living for others, we're not going to have too much time to worry about ourselves. Amen? And if that's the promise, and if that's the practice, who is the prototype but Jesus our Christ? The writer of Hebrews puts it like this. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles us, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. How? Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, or some translations say the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. I love alliteration, so that one just seems better to me. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. This world likes you weary. This world likes you tired. This world likes you paralyzed. Because if you're weary and you're tired and you're paralyzed, you have no use to God. It doesn't matter what you believe if you're not living it. And you're not going to get out of this life if Jesus isn't your prototype. We're all surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses here in this church, in the worldwide church, but also with every Christian who's ever lived. That's the worldwide witnesses that we have, but we're not going to take steps forward and usher in and create God's kingdom with him if Jesus is not our prototype. The minute you take your eye off Jesus, the step you're closer to your destruction. The minute you live your life and built it on what you want and not what Jesus calls you to do, another step you take closer to your destruction. If we want to create God's kingdom, we must hold on to the promise of joy. We must practice it by seeking Jesus first, living for others. But we must always keep our eyes on Jesus. That's what joy is. So if we want to say what's joy this morning, if we want a textbook definition, I think it's simply this, celebrating God's blessings to you. Joy is celebrating God's blessing. Because how do we partner with God to create his kingdom? We hope, we trust what God has done, we trust what God will do, because if I'm trusting what he's done, and I'm trusting what he'll do, today's nothing to worry about, is it? How do we build and partner with God to create his kingdom? We give thanks and live by peace. We live with his peace, with the Holy Spirit upon us, with the Holy Spirit speaking to us, and with the Holy Spirit moving us. This is why Jesus says, do not fear the world. I've overcome the world because he's sending you with the Spirit of God. He's sending you into the dark places saying, you are the light. Our fear is meant to paralyze. The world needs us to do nothing. The world needs us to be paralyzed with how terrible everything is. Because if you're just buying the lie that things are so terrible and they'll never change, you're not being used by God to bring the healing our world needs. If you can acknowledge the darkness and not acknowledge the light within, the darkness can overwhelm you. How do we partner with God to create his kingdom? We have to. 
We have to. We have to live with joy. There's so many Christians I know who if you ask them, or even this morning, if you did your own personal inventory and asked yourself, am I living with joy? Am I living with this promise that no matter what I see right now, that joy is coming in the morning? Am I truly living to put Jesus first and seek his kingdom? Am I truly living for others? Do I really believe that Jesus is my prototype? If you ask yourself those questions and say, am I living with joy? And if you can't answer yes, perhaps this morning is an invitation to ask God for some help. Because if we, the Christians, aren't living with joy, what hope does our world have? If we are not the people of hope, if we are not the peacemakers, if we are not celebrating God's blessings to us. What hope do we carry into our world? And this is a weird sermon because it's supposed to be about joy. We want to be happy. But we live in a world where even we, the Christians, are not practicing joy. And I think Zechariah helps us understand the joy we are to live with. Zechariah's story is interesting because just like all these Bible names, the names have meaning. And I learned this this week, that Zechariah's name basically means the one God remembers. And I love that. And we've been doing through this, like, maybe the last year, I've been seeing this relationship. It started with Hagar, you know, you are the God who sees me. And it continued last week even with Simeon. And now it shows up again with Zechariah, the one God remembers. And I think there's somebody in this room who's going through something who just needs to know that you are the one that God remembers. And Zechariah, you would think that he has this great blessing. He's coming from this priestly family. He's been taught everything there is to know, he thought, right? And he, he has a name that everywhere he went is like, I am the one God remembers. That's kind of how I want to enter the room. They're like, Hank, I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm the one God remembers. He has this beautiful legacy of a name and an inheritance. But yet life takes his eyes off of God and he loses his hope. And he doesn't quite believe the peace he's supposed to live with. And he doesn't even think joy is possible. But before we judge him too harshly, we must remember that Jesus gave us the ultimate gift upon Calvary's tree. Yet we lose our hope. Yet we don't bring peace into our world. And yet we live without joy. Same thing that happens to Zechariah is happening to so many of us. Zechariah was a priest. He was a descendant of Aaron, which to us is not a big deal. To them, it was a very, very big deal. In fact, there was 24 divisions of priests. His division is from Abijah. And, and it sounds like Abijah, so I want to think the brother's African, but I don't think he was, right? Abijah's in West Africa, Ivory Coast. Geography, that's good for us. Um, but he was a priest from the line of Aaron. 
And why this was significant was that these were people who were chosen by God to say, wherever my people go, whether it's in captivity, whether it's in Roman rule, Babylonian rule, Assyrian rule, you are my remnant who will call my people back to you. And I have a soft spot for these priests because God's intentional plan was never to set aside a certain group to do this. He wanted a kingdom of priests. So even as Christians, when we say priesthood of all believers, that's what God means, that you are the ones that are chosen to go to his people, the world, to tell them who he is. Aaron had the descendants. In fact, he was so much a descendant of Aaron that the priests were limited to only marrying other full Jews. But then, like, because, you know, comparison, you know, you always got to do better than somebody else, right? If you wanted to be a real priest, a priest priest, you wouldn't just marry a full Jew. You would marry someone who is also a descendant of Aaron. And that's who his wife, Elizabeth, was. Now, you have to understand that because there were so many priests in this time in Israel, that for the most part, there was about 18 to 24,000 priests at this time, right? Now, that to us might seem like a crazy big number. It was. It was a really big number. In fact, outside of Passover, Pentecost, and Feast of the Tabernacle, you might only show up once or twice a year to actually do your priestly duties. That's how many priests they had. Now, when you got chosen, and you see this through the passage, when you got chosen for your priestly duties, you know, you had to allocate everything by lot. So you had maybe a thousand people who were on, and you had this whole week or two that you had to give your service. You did it once or twice a year. But here's the thing that's very, very interesting, is that you might all be serving at the temple, but only a few might be chosen to do certain duties. And they would literally cast lots to see who this would fall upon. So for example, to go and, and, and to give the offering that was for the nation, right? You would give the offering to say, God, forgive the sins of all your people, that was chosen by Lot. You would do it in the morning, you would do it in the evening, and then the even more special job was the person who got to light the incense. And all of this was chosen by Lot. In fact, the incense priest, they would probably happen to you once in your lifetime. 24,000, 1,000 on duty, once or twice a year, once maybe in your lifetime you get to take the incense in. That's what Zechariah is doing. He's the one who's been chosen to give the incense. Again, us removed from that culture, we're just like, well, I guess that's what the priests do. No, 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 no. This is an amazing thing. His entire life, this would have been the highlight of his life, that he gets to carry the incense into the temple and give the offering for his people. That's what's happening. The other thing about Zechariah and Elizabeth is that we hear in this passage that they were righteous and blameless before God. Now, some people hear that and be like, well, they are perfect. You know, they definitely didn't sin. Then you read the passage and you're like, I'm not quite sure. You know, like there might be a couple times they slipped a little. That's not what it means that they were perfect. It only means that they were faithful. And I love that because there's so many of us who think this Christianity is about us being perfect. On this side of heaven, you might fall a little short of perfection. But on this side of heaven, you can always be faithful. That's why David, who sinned and sinned greatly, was able to be called a man after God's own heart. Because when he saw his sin, he cried out to God for forgiveness. God is not asking you and begging you and even expecting you to be perfect. But he is expecting all of you to be faithful. Faithful to him. 
faithful to his call, faithful to what he's called you to be. And that's what they were. So when they're called righteous and blameless, they weren't perfect, but they were faithful to God. And because Elizabeth was the daughter of Aaron and Zechariah was the daughter of Aaron, they had what was looked upon in their culture as like a holy, perfect marriage, if you will. But it was also a tragic marriage. And we revisited this a couple months ago when we did Sarah. It was a tragic marriage because in that culture, to be barren was a disgrace. And even though on the outside they had the perfect resume, they were from the perfect families, they were priests, you know, his whole life, and she was probably the daughter of a priest, or maybe her mom was the daughter of a priest, but they had everything on the outside looking good. They were a little bit older, so they're probably more established financially. They were looked up with in their community, yet they were barren. Now, another thing we forget about this culture was it wasn't just, oh, they elevated children above everything. Now, I think we do that, but that's another sermon. But what it meant was these weren't people who believed the eternal life that we now understand. For them, how I live eternally is passing on my family line. It's passing on that inheritance that the person who comes from me is going to keep going on to keep our family going. So when they're barren, it's a great disgrace. And it was such a disgrace in Israel that whether or not you were a priest or a commoner, you were actually allowed, if you're a man, to divorce your wife because obviously it was never the wife's, you know, it was never the husband's fault that they they couldn't have kids. It was always the wife they would blame. But you were actually allowed to divorce on this issue of barrenness. So when you look at their marriage, even though on the outside it looked perfect, on the inside it was tragic. And I think this is a reminder for all of us and those of us who are blessed to be married to make sure that it's not about what we look like on the outside but it's about what we're working on on the inside. That the two of us are really growing to become one in Christ. That the two of us are really praying and navigating this life together. That we are actually not about everyone else thinking we're okay if the two of us don't know we're okay. And if you're not married, whether you look at your relationships or even your relationship with God, because that probably matters the most. It doesn't matter on the outside if everyone thinks you're okay, but if God and your heart and you know yourself that you're not okay. And so you have this wedding and this marriage that looks great on the outside, but was tragic to everyone else on the inside because they held that pain that maybe God doesn't love me. Zechariah, the one God remembers, and Elizabeth think that God has forgotten them. So Zechariah goes into the temple. It's the one day in his life that he's been looking forward to. The people are waiting outside and they're praying. He's going to go and after they give the offering for all of Israel, he's going to go and he's the one to light the incense. What a wonderful day. And as you're lighting the incense, you know, some commenters say, I think he was praying for a baby. And some say, no, 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 no. He's a priestly man. So obviously he wasn't that selfish. He's praying for the nation. Either way, he gets a surprise. He walks in, and he's about to light his incense, and who's there but Gabriel? And Gabriel gives him this great promise. Zechariah, your prayers have been answered. God will send you a son. And he goes into this whole detail. You know, a lot of times when God gives us promises, right, we have to live through them. So, for example, I will never leave you or forsake you, right? That's a promise from God. It doesn't really come with like an ABCD of how he'll never leave you or forsake you. This is one of those times where Gabriel has this promise from God 
And it's laid out for Zechariah. It's like, this is your son. He's going to prepare the way for the Messiah. This is your son. He's going to take Israel that has ran far and call the hearts back to God. This is your son. He will rise up like a priest and like a Nazarite. He's going to bring people back to God so that the paths can be cleared. And you have to understand, one of the jobs for kings back then, for example, and I love this because, you know, I live in Pennsylvania and PennDOT. I'm sorry if you work for PennDOT, but I hate potholes. Um, We can talk about it later, right? But one of the jobs for kings was to clear the path so the people can walk through. That was the job, right? That was literally one of the jobs of kings. So this priest, this Nazarite, this John the Baptist was given a kingly duty that he would clear the way so Jesus could come. What a tremendous blessing. Your whole life you've been praying for a child. Now the child will come and the child will be great, not just in your eyes, but in God's eyes. And Zechariah's like, are you sure? Like, this sounds real good, but like, are you sure, sure? Because like, I'm not quite sure what you're saying right now. And he goes back to Father Abraham, right? Because you know, like, I'm old. (laughs) And, And my wife, she's old too. Like, are you sure, Gabriel? And then he almost seems to be demanding a sign, right, after making his excuse. And Gabriel says, man, do you know who I am? (laughs) Like, I stand in the presence of God, right? And if that's not enough, I'm coming with the mouthpiece of God to tell you this thing. And you know what? Since you want to talk, you ain't going to talk till it happens. You're not going to talk again until the sun shows up. And here's why I forgot about the story. It doesn't end in the temple. Zechariah has been in. We don't know how long this vision happened or what, this conversation. Everyone's out there waiting. Now, I know for some of us, we're trained around here. If it's 1230 or, you know, 1030, we go over. Sometimes not a big deal. But it was more likely they went over more than five minutes. So everybody's praying. They're just like, well, he's really getting it in. Like, he's praying, praying. Like, what's going on? When he comes out, he can't speak. When he comes out, he's supposed to give a blessing. He's supposed to say, like, yeah, God accepted the offering, everybody. We're good for the year. We're good to go. You can go home again. He says nothing. And then he also has to finish his duties, right? Because they did this once or twice a year. It could be up to a month. So he's in silence that entire time. But when he finishes his duties, I don't know how he communicated to Elizabeth, but he goes home. And months later, Elizabeth is pregnant. And months after that, a son is born, and they know joy. Now, before we talk about lessons we can pull from this, I was just thinking about how this whole story is about how God comes to show favor and give joy. And I think that's something I want us to really hold on to, that God is not just on your side. God wants to bless you. And it might not be a blessing the way you see a blessing, but that's what God wants to do. He wants to show you his love and his favor. He wants to gift you joy. And that's important because the second greatest thing Teddy Roosevelt ever said, you know, well, maybe the first, actually. The first greatest thing Teddy Roosevelt ever said. The second one, I was going to let my African buy it. So he, he sold us from West Africa, speak softly and carry a big stick, you know? But the, the first greatest thing he said was comparison is the thief of joy. And it's so true because there's so many of us who are so good at comparing what we're not. 
There was a study a couple years ago from a brilliant lady from Yale, Dr. Lori Santos, and she compiled a bunch of research because she noticed something. I don't know if you remember in 2012, there was a gymnast who was on, I think, the pole vault, M Michaela Maroney, and, and she fell and she was the favorite. And it was like a meme. You can Google it now or later if you want. But she had that, that face, it was like, like smirking almost. It was like all over the internet, right? And, and, and so she started there and she like compiled this list and she found something that was astounding to me. She found, not on average, basically across the board, people who won bronze medals were way happier than people who want silver. She found across the board that people who want silver said stuff like, I felt like I was in mourning. I felt like a complete failure. She found even some people who hated and wouldn't even put on their silver medal. And she dug a little bit deeper, and what she found is that the people who win silver don't think that like, oh my goodness, at this time, in the entire billions of people on earth, I am the second best at all of this, at whatever event. They don't think that way. They think, oh my gosh, my whole life, I've dreamed of this and I have failed. And the bronze people are happy because, not because they're more righteous, but because they're comparing too. But their comparison goes something like this, oh my goodness, I almost didn't get a medal like the hundreds of other people behind me. Praise God, I got my bronze medal. Comparison is the thief of joy. And one of the things all of us struggle with is not the life that we live, but it's the life we wish we could live. It's not what we have, it's what we hope to have. What we struggle with, and then I think one of the other things she found that was fascinating is whenever we compare, we never compare apples to apples. If we feel lonely, we think everybody out there is just having a grand old time, right? If we feel like no one loves us, we think everyone out there is being loved in every way that's possible. Comparison is the thief of joy. And Zechariah took his eyes off of God, and he, the one God remembers, forget that God remembers him, and he started comparing himself to all the other priests or all the other families. But here's another thing I've been thinking about. I just read this as, you know, now he can't speak. That's a punishment. Or, you know, if you want to dress it up a little bit, that's a consequence. And there's a guy, Pete Scazzaro, who um, used to lead a church in New York City, a multicultural church. One of my mentors goes there. Um, it's, it's a really good church. But he had this line where he says that it's easy for us to see God in our potential, but really we need to see God in our limits. And I was like, huh, let's break this down a little bit. When you're just dreaming about your idealized self or all your skills, your gifts, your abilities, it's easy to see God there. But what Pete is tapping at is that we all only have one body, this body. We all only have one mind, this mind. We all only have one family, this family. We all only have one dream, this dream. But if we're able to see that in this world, there's always going to be someone with a better family. There's always going to be someone with a better bank account. There's always going to be someone smarter. There's always going to be someone who seems like they got it more put together. Comparison is a thief of joy. But if you're able to say, God, I need you where I fall short. I need you where I lack. 
and my limitations are not God punishing me. It's God calling me to him. Because Zechariah took his eyes off of God. And now for maybe months after, oh, definitely months after, the only person he could talk to is God. That's not a punishment. That's a joy. Zechariah takes his eyes off of God and let his dream of the life that he wished he could have, even when God promised him that life. And now for months, the only person he could dream with really was God. Our limitations is an invitation to let God in. You, by yourself, will never be this idealized version of what you think you should be. But you, with God, might just be the idealized person he's created you to be. Joy to the world, Christ has come. Joy to your world, how is Christ coming to you? If we're going to say comparison is the thief of joy, then we have to kind of balance that and say contentment is the only way to fight it. We have to not just be content, but celebrate what God has done. Because here's the thing, when you're celebrating God's blessing and you're counting God's blessings, it's a little harder to do comparison. I loved in Dr. Santos's research, one of the um, one of the researchers she interviewed said, you know what's fascinating? You know, I love when secular people use like really Christian language and don't know it's Christian language. You know, he's like, what's fascinating is most people, if you ask them what's the happiest they've ever felt, it's usually stuff they averted. They went to the doctor and got a better test. Something happened to someone they loved, but they made it through. You know, and he's like, it's almost as if, how do we defeat comparison? We just need to count our blessings. And I'm listening to this Ivy League guy say, count our blessings. And I was just like, don't we need to do the same? How do you defeat comparison? Take a deep breath and thank God for the breath in your lungs. How do we defeat comparison? Take another deep breath and thank God you're alive and you're here and you're right now. The way to defeat comparison is simply to give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks in all things. Give thanks to God for everything because he will see you through anything. Never grow tired of thanking God. How do you defeat comparison? Never let a day go by without giving God praise. If you want to have joy, that's how you hold on to joy. Never let a day go by without saying, God, I thank you. God, I praise you. God, I thank you. God, I praise you. Then do it again. God, I thank you. God, I praise you. How do you get through comparison? You live content. How do you live content? Just tell God thank you. Because if you're living content and you're counting your blessings, then you'll find that celebration of God's blessings is not just meant for you. One of the things I love about our God is that he didn't just come for you or you or you. He came for us. And this thing that's so personal to Eliah, uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth, they get to celebrate it with their community. Because at the end of the story, the shame Zechariah and Elizabeth, they're shamed because of what other people put on them, Right? God still says, no, 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 when this child comes, forget all that shame. We're going to celebrate as a family. We're going to celebrate as a community because I want you to know, Zechariah, I want you to know, Elizabeth, that my love is greater than any shame. 
And there's some of us who need to be reminded of that this morning, right? Someone's going to actually start listening to me and getting these tattoos. But maybe that's your second tattoo you need to get. God's love is greater than my shame. Or maybe you just need a piece of paper. If you don't like tattoos, write it on a piece of paper every single day till you believe it. God's love is greater than my shame. And God wanted not just Elizabeth and Zechariah to know, but all the people to know you've been judging them for years and years and years. But guess what? My love for them and for you is greater than any shame. God's blessing will always be greater than any haters you can come across. I love that. Joy is just celebrating God's blessing. So we need to live content. We need to count our blessings. We need to make sure this blessing is communal, something we share with the family. But celebrating God's blessing is being like Christ. How do you have joy? You trust the promise that you are not the worst thing you've done that you are not the addictions that so easily entangle you, that you are not the darkness that even lives inside your own heart. You trust the promise that no matter what you're going through right now, that joy comes in the morning. And you trust that promise because there's nothing you're going through that God hasn't healed. There's nothing you struggled with that God hasn't redeemed. There's nothing you've done that God doesn't forgive. Because when we start to believe that we are the worst thing that we've done, and when we start to believe that God can never love us, and when we start to believe that we can never get out of this darkness, Satan wins. But tell yourself, that joy comes in the morning. Tell yourself that God has healed this before. Tell yourself that this doesn't shock God. He's redeemed it before. Tell yourself that there's no brokenness, that the power of God cannot heal. Trust the promise, but practice joy. We have to be a people who are more defined by seeking first the kingdom of God. If you want to bring God's kingdom into this world, How are you seeking first God's kingdom? Is Jesus the Lord of your life? Is Jesus the Lord of your dreams? Is Jesus the Lord of your family for some of us? Because that's the God we struggle with the most. Is Jesus the Lord of your finances? Because some of us, that's what we struggle with the most too. Is Jesus the Lord of your gifts, skills, and abilities? Everything that's been given to you, have you made Jesus the Lord of that? Because if you haven't, you got work to do. Seek first the kingdom of God. And as you seek first the kingdom of God, can you truly answer that my life is being lived for others? That my life is being lived for others. Do I truly love my sister and brother? Do they know? Because that's always a tricky one. Because some of us, we answer, yes, yeah. Do they know you love them? In this world that's so broken, do they know healing's available? In this world that's so dark, do they know the true light is already shining? In this world that needs redemption, do they know Christ has come? And lastly, we got to fix our eyes on Jesus always. One of the greatest spiritual disciplines you can do is every single day, Ask God to help you keep your eyes trained on Jesus. 
You know, I was going to end with saying, you know what? We're going to do something happy with joy, you know? So I want everybody this week to, to find something that brings you joy and do it, but then do that regularly. That's true. You should do that. You should do it regularly. Like if something brings you joy, like me, it's eating a good steak. I do that very regularly, you know? It's true. But that doesn't mean as much as training myself to regularly keep my eyes on Jesus. Because all it takes is one second to grow into a minute, to grow into an hour, to grow into a day. And then that second is a step away from Jesus. And that hour is 60 steps away from Jesus. And that day is 24 hours away from Jesus. And then I live in that funk. Always train yourself to keep your eyes on Jesus. When the scripture says, behold, now is the day of salvation, it's not just for those who haven't believed. It's for all of us who have believed and still believe that we have to train ourselves to always keep our eyes on Jesus. Choose joy, my sisters and brothers. And if you can't, practice living for Jesus first, living for others. And when you do that, we can bring joy this world needs. I'd like to invite up the, the choir. I believe we'll be singing our last song. I'd like to also invite up the intercessors. Um, any staff, if you're in the room and want to come up for prayer. As we sing this song, I want us to just be thinking through, what does Christ's joy mean to me? What does it mean that Christ has come? And how am I going to either choose joy or practice joy? Because joy cannot just be a concept for me. It has to be a lived reality. How do I choose contentment over comparison? How do I live for Jesus and not myself? And how do I pour myself out in others? Our world needs joy. Jesus sends you. Let's stand and sing together. Instead of pain, 
thank you so much for the joy that we can know deep in our soul. We thank you for the joy that we can know in our everyday scenes. Lord, teach us not to compare, but to be content. Teach us not to look at the world, but to look at your son, Jesus Christ. Teach us how to seek first your kingdom. God, in a world that is so sorrowful, help us to be your joy bringers. In a world that's so dark, help us to be your light. In a world that's so broken, help us to know that you redeem and you can use us to redeem. Lord, thank you for your gift of joy. Let us not only know this joy, but live with this joy and share it with our world. In your holy and precious name, amen. amen. God bless you all. You give me joy, God, deep in my soul. 